Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoyed today's message. So this morning I want to talk to you about Jehovah Shalom. It means the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom means the Lord is peace. I saw a meme the other day, and it was pretty interesting. How many of you have no idea what a meme is? Raise your hands. Oh, everybody does. Man, that first crowd, they, were, they didn't know a thing. And so everybody knows what. Well, this is what the meme said. It said this. It said, if you're arguing with your wife, tell her she's overreacting. She will calm down for sure, and that will solve the problem. So <clears throat> I've been married for almost 14 years. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that this works every single time, every time. So Melissa and I are are talking and we're arguing a little bit. She starts to get a little bit animated. I say, dear, you're overreacting. And she calms right down. We hold hands. We do these little Eskimo kisses. And it's just this wonderful life that we lead. It's it's, it's amazing. Um, There are some of you here that know us a little bit better than others. And you have... You, you've seen us sort of at home and in different settings, and you know this is true about us, amen? Can I get some support here? I got one, thank you. Jenna was on some youth trips with us. She knows, she knows, so uh, I appreciate that. Sometimes, you know, just some advice for you today. I like to be helpful and practical for you. Sometimes you can get creative. You don't just have to say you're overreacting. You could, you could try just saying something like this, crazy town, right? <laughs> You could, you could say that, or, or you could, you know, if she is kind of getting animated or overreacting, you can just look at her with really big eyes and just say, yikes. That helps. Also, it, also you know, if you're feeling really good, uh, another alternative may be to say, okay, and then call her by her mother's name. So I've, I've found that that works, and that can be just as effective. She'll calm right down every time, every time. I would, I would encourage you to try this. Um, men, husbands, try this. If it doesn't work, I would be happy to uh, refer you to counseling with Pastor Mel. All right, don't bother me with it, but, uh, <laughs> but Pastor Mel would love to help you out with that. We were leading a, a young adult Sunday school class several years ago, and we had a little bit of a running joke <clears throat> um, in that class that, that, uh, that size. We, we knew that there was always somebody in that class, uh, always a couple in that class, that had fought that morning on the way to church. It was always different, um, but we were guessing that there was somebody that fought on the way, and so we'd always try to like pick it out and find out who those people were. And one Sunday, <clears throat> there was a couple that came in. They were late, and you know there was this obvious chill in the room when they came in. Like, you knew. And um, so I was standing up there. I was leading the class, and I said, you're the couple, aren't you? Like, what? You're the couple that's fighting this morning. It's obvious, isn't it? And the wife, I won't tell you who it was, but the wife looked at me and said, move on, Chris. And I said, okay, and then called her by her mother's name. It was, it was perfect. So how many of you know tension is going to happen in life, right? There's no magic pill. There's no magic phrase. There's no easy button that we can push to just completely eliminate the tension in the world. There's tension in the world. There's tension at work. There's tension at school. There's tension at church. I know you didn't know that, but sometimes even this perfect little world bubble that we're in right now in church full of believers and men and faith and power and all that stuff, we have tension here at church as well. There's tension in your health. 
Some of you can feel it right now, like you feel that tension in your back and in your shoulders and your leg. There's something not right in your body and you feel the tension. There can be tension in your home. There can be tension in your marriage. There can be tension with your kids. It's amazing how it works with kids. Like there will be one of your kids that you just think, man, they are the best kid in the world and, and I love you today and today you're awesome. And then this other kid over here is just driving you crazy and what is their deal? And then the next day it just flips. And so they keep in, but there's always, it seems like there's tension somewhere. It's just all around us. How many of you would say there is at least one area in my life right now that today I am experiencing some tension? <clears throat> A lot of you. In many ways, we have become so accustomed to living with tension that we don't really even know what peace feels like. We assume that this idea of peace is a myth. It's a fantasy. It's like Bigfoot or the unicorn. Like we're always chasing it, but we can never actually find it. We can't identify it. We can't lay hold of, of peace. The reason many of us feel that way is because we don't know God as our Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. So what we're doing or what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two different stories one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, I forgot to mention this earlier. If you have, if you have your Bibles, um, open them up to Mark chapter 4 and Judges chapter 6. We're going to be going back and forth between those two. Mark chapter 4 and Judges chapter 6. In the Old Testament, in, in Judges chapter 6, we're going to see that Gideon builds an altar and he names it Jehovah Shalom. He identifies the Lord is peace for the very first time. And then what we're going to see in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 4, is Jesus operating in a very real, very tangible and physical way as Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. And so it's going to be, we're going to be back and forth a little bit so um, you can kind of Follow along on the screen or just flip that Bible back and forth. We're going to start in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. This is what it says. On that day, when evening had come, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in, or let me read this again. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So we have a couple of different groups here as the story begins. We have Jesus, obviously, who is always the center of attention in any scripture in, in, in the Bible. Jesus is always the center. And so we have Jesus there. And then we have his inner circle of disciples, those, the 12 disciples that we know and that we typically call disciples. There were other people there. Um, they're called disciples as well because disciples are followers of Christ, but they were, they were sort of on the outside of the inner circle. And so there was hundreds of disciples that followed Jesus and learned and taught and grew in the Lord and, and were helping to advance the kingdom and do ministry together. But we have Jesus there with the 12. And then the other disciples got in other boats and followed him across the Sea of Galilee. There on the shore stayed the bystanders or, or the, the observers, those people who were there to just hear Jesus teach and preach and maybe get fed some fish or, or experience a miracle or something like that. But, but those on the shore stayed. Then Jesus, with his 12, with the inner circle disciples, got in one boat, and the other disciples got in the other boats and followed him along on the other side of the sea. Jesus didn't tell them why they were going. He just says, let's go. 
And Jesus knew why they were going. They were going because there was a man in the, in the nation of the Gerasenes that was possessed with 2,000 demons. And Jesus was going to go over there and heal him and set him free of a demon possession where he was just completely consumed with. And so the disciples didn't know why they were going, but Jesus did. He said, hey, let's go. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, I said to the early service that there was something that, that I read this morning that I just noticed, or it just connected with me for the very first time. Sometimes we think that we find ourselves in the middle of the storm, and it's because God has abandoned us, or it's because God has left us. But what happens, I believe, most of the time is that the enemy of your souls, the enemy of the church, the enemy of the world, Satan, often knows, and he can often perceive the plan that God has for the believer. As we begin to walk and operate in faithfulness and obedience and follow the plan that God has for us, I believe that a lot of times, not because he knows the future, but, but, but because he's really smart and he can see and perceive things, the enemy knows that there is somebody over here bound, that there's about to be a collision course with the believers, that that person is going to be set free. And so because the enemy never wants that to happen, he will often put storms in your life to get you off track so that you cannot be and accomplish the mission of the kingdom that God has planned for you. And so sometimes we feel like storms are this sort of indicator that God has abandoned us, but when it is oftentimes an indicator that you are right where God wants you and the enemy doesn't want you to be following the path of God. So he wants to distract you and get you off course. And so if we can look at storms in our life as this sort of stamp, not all the times, but sometimes as this stamp that I am exactly where God wants me to be, because on the other side of the storm, there is somebody that is going to be radically changed for all of eternity for the kingdom of God, because I have the courage and the strength and the commitment to endure the storm. Like There is something on the other side of your storm. There always is, especially if you're walking with God. And so they were going, the storm was happening. Um, Jesus awoke because the disciples were freaking out. He rebuked the wind and the waves, and he said, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Everybody say great calm. There was a great calm. This is one of my absolute favorite images of Jesus in all of scripture. Standing there at the front of the boat, um, the storm raging, he says, peace, be still. He basically tells the storm to knock it off, and it listens and responds, and there was a great calm. Just a great calm. Have you ever been on a lake or um, gone water skiing. There's sometimes that you're water skiing and, and the, the lake is choppy and you know you get out outside the wake and you're hitting those waves and it's kind of bumping and rattling you a little bit. But then there's other times, maybe towards the end of the evening, where the wind just stops completely and the sea is just like glass. Have you ever been skiing, like water skiing on a sea that, or, or on a lake that is just like crystal clear and it's like glass and you get out there and it's just, it's so smooth and it's so calm. It's almost eerie feeling because there's not a ripple in the water. And when you see a ripple and it might be like a little goldfish, you think it's a shark and it's gonna, but anyway, <clears throat> but it's so calm. That's what happened. There was a great, great calm. From what I can tell, 
We are a people, from what I've observed as a pastor, and just in life, you've seen it too, we are a people that fight for calm. We chase calm. We chase those moments of peace. We look forward to our next temporary reprieve. That's why parents love to put their kids to bed at 7 o'clock, right? Because I just need an hour of peace and quiet. Give me some calm, right? We, we chase those things. Though they're small and though they're fleeting, we look for the next moment of calm. I just want to disconnect. I want to shut my brain off for a minute. I just want to sit down and relax and just have some peace, right? You know what I'm talking about. So what, what do we do? We go on vacations. We experience moments of calm. We get lost in a good book and it, it's calming. We work hard and uh, we earn some extra money and that brings calm. I mean, money doesn't buy happiness, but how many of you know there's a lot more peace in your home when you have enough money to pay your bills, right? When you're not living outside of your means, you can afford things, you can pay your bills, you go on vacation, that vacation bill doesn't follow you home. Like, there's real, genuine peace in that. And so we work hard, we make some extra money, and uh, there's more calm. Or you play the Powerball, and surely a hundred extra million dollars is going to bring some calm in your life, though it's fleeting. We practice hard to win championships, and you hoist the trophy, and and for a moment, for a season, there is great calm, and there's accomplishment, and there's peace. We sometimes self-medicate looking for calm, turning to drugs and alcohol, pornography, and anything else, just trying to find a moment of peace, of disconnect, so I can just survive. But in all of our attempts, in all of our efforts, all of this hard work, this, this calm, this peace that we're chasing is fleeting and it's always, always temporary. And what, we, what, what do we do in these moments of calm? We, we keep chasing the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And we can't ever hold on to it for any length of time. Because very few of us have ever experienced the great calm. Look, Jehovah Shalom, he doesn't just represent a good day. Jehovah Shalom doesn't just represent a fun vacation. Jehovah Shalom doesn't just represent a moment of peace. Jehovah Shalom is the great calm, the peace in our lives. So let's turn over to the Old Testament, Judges chapter 6. We're going to pick up the story in Gideon. I I preached about Gideon a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of months ago. And so we're not going to talk about the whole story. But what's happening here in in the context of it is that Gideon is a member of the nation of Israel. And the Israelites are being severely oppressed by the Midianites. Um, they, the Midianites constantly come in and they steal from Israel. They, they uh, plunder their livestock and their crops. And it's just a very uh, tense time in Israel's history. They're constantly being attacked. They're constantly being plundered. It's just a really, really low moment. And so we find Gideon and he's in a wine press and he's threshing wheat. Basically, he's hiding from the Midianites because if they see and discover and realize that he has something, they'll come in and take it. And so he is He's tense, he, he's scared, he's hiding, and he's trying to just survive. And so one day, in the midst of all this major national oppression, God appears to Gideon, and basically he says this, Hey, Gideon, all of this tension that the entire nation is feeling, you know what I'm talking about? Gideon's like, yeah, where have you been, God? God says to Gideon, I want you to do something about this. They have this whole conversation. You can read it there in Judges chapter 6, verse 11 through 22. They talk. They eat together. I mean, they have this actual conversation where Gideon is talking to God as if God is a man, and they're communicating that way, that close, and that near. 
And then we get to verse 23. And the Lord said to Gideon, peace. He just declares peace. Though there's nothing peaceful about this situation, there's nothing peaceful about this season that Israel is in. He says, peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. He was telling him, peace, look, relax, because Gideon was freaking out when he realized that he was actually talking to God, that he would die because he was talking to God. He says, peace, no, relax, peace, peace. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. Scripture says to this day, it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abizrites. Verse 25, then that night, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And this I know to be true because it's true for me. And my guess is it's true for you too. <clears throat> we want peace. Yes? We want to live in peace. We want to experience the goodness and the peace of Jehovah Shalom, but we don't ever want to be in a situation where Jehovah Shalom is all we need. Yes, it's true that the Lord is peace at all times. The reality is, though, that the majesty and the power of Jehovah Shalom is on display in times of trouble. It's interesting to me that um, in this situation, Gideon would build an altar and call it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace, when it seems to me that he needed the Lord to be something else. It seems to me that he needed the Lord to be champion. I don't know why he didn't call this altar the Lord is champion, the Lord is king, the Lord is savior, the Lord is strong, the Lord is my defender, the Lord is my, the Lord is my victor. I don't know why he didn't say anything else, but I think the reason why he said the Lord is peace is because in that moment, in the season of Israel, peace is the only thing that they needed. So there's times in our life where everything is tense and chaotic, and we're asking God to be this, we're asking God to be that, we're asking God to be this, and we're asking God to be that, when really what we need God to be in our life is peace. We just need him to be peace. When the sea is raging, Jehovah Shalom says, peace, be still. When the nation of Israel is under attack, Jehovah Shalom says, peace, do not fear. God isn't saying, look, I want to give you peace. God isn't saying, I will make the situation peaceful. What he wants his creation to know, what he wants believers and unbelievers alike to know, is that he is peace. The Lord is peace. He isn't just a good day. He isn't just a relaxing moment. He isn't just the calm. He is the great calm. It's the great calm that supersedes every situation, every circumstance, every pain, every hurt, every heartache, every battle, and every tension. Jehovah Shalom is the great calm. He is the supernatural peace. So for the remainder of our time, I want to make three just really quick observations about this and about Jehovah Shalom and about the great calm and about peace. And so we're going to start here. Number one says this, great calm doesn't always mean the battle is over. If you're taking notes, you can write that down on the back of your bulletin there. Great calm doesn't always mean the battle is over. <clears throat> God reveals himself to Gideon as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. And then God says to Gideon, now it's time to fight. Don't you find that interesting? 
God says, look, peace to you, peace. You know, don't be afraid. I'm here. I'm the God of peace. You know, the Lord is peace, 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 peace. And then God says, now go fight. Get ready to fight. Usually talks of peace come after the battle. But Jehovah Shalom is your peace before the battle, after the battle, and right in the middle of the battle. He is peace. And look, Jehovah Shalom, he doesn't have to fight for peace. He doesn't have to negotiate for peace. He is peace. So God tells Gideon, cut down the idols, destroy the articles of worship that your father and your community have set up to worship Baal, this false demon God. Um, the, the nation of Israel had turned from God. They were worshiping other gods. And basically, God, Jehovah, comes into Gideon and says, that's enough of this. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. We're going to do something about this. But first, I want you to go and destroy the altars to Baal that are in your father's place. These are false gods, and you or the people of God should have nothing to do with them. Peace to you. Now go destroy those things in your life that don't belong. He's saying the same thing to you here today, this morning, I believe. In times of worship, in times where you feel the presence of the Lord and you feel like, man, there's just something right about God. You feel the Holy Spirit speaking to your life and he's directing and, and he's sort of wiping his ointment, his healing ointment that like we talked about last week over those uh, difficult places in your life and you just feel the peace of God. Very rarely does God ever say to you, peace to you, <clears throat> now go take a nap. Peace to you, now go Relax. Often he will say, peace to you, peace to your family, peace to your marriage, peace to your life. Now go home and destroy those things in your life that don't belong. Go home and get rid of that garbage in your life that is taking you away from a relationship with God. Go home and deal with the junk in your marriage, in your family, in your relationship with your kids that is making God little in your life. Peace to you, we get, this, we get this feeling, this sense of who God is, and it's overwhelming, and it's great, and it's calm, and it's peaceful. And then he says, now go do some really, really tough, hard work. Peace to you. Now let's go fight. The peace that Jesus gives is not the absence of trouble, but it's rather the confidence that he is there with you always. Jesus shows the disciples this great peace. He reveals himself as the Prince of Peace. He reveals himself as Jehovah Shalom, and he says, peace be still, and, and they're freaked out. Wow. And then he says, now I want you to come and follow me, and I want you to give your lives for me. Jesus says, peace, and then he says, let's go do battle for the kingdom of God, and it's going to cost you your lives. This happens time and time again. We see the believer battling cancer with a great calm, and it's amazing. We don't understand it. It's because they've experienced the peace of God in their life. We see the believer deal with the loss of a child with a great calm. And we wonder and, and we're in awe at how and why they're able to function and how and why they're able to still smile. It's because they've experienced the great calm that Jehovah Shalom offers. We see the believer be able to handle public ridicule and persecution with a great calm. And it makes no sense except for the fact that Jehovah Shalom is Lord of their life. There's a missionary that we support on a monthly basis. We support him financially and, and through prayer. Um, he was just here a couple of months ago, and he was speaking with us. And, uh, as soon as he went back to India, 
uh, he, was, he started to face some persecution. There were some things that were being said about him, some false accusations, and it ended up that he was arrested and thrown in prison until some of these things could, could be cleared up. Um, there was a group of people that didn't like what he was doing in, in his ministry, and so they were really aggressive about these false accusations. And it got so tense, in fact, that his wife and children had to leave um, so that nothing would happen to them. We've been praying for them a lot and um, trying to stay in contact with him. He's out of prison now, and, and uh, the corrupt court system that they are in right now is uh, beginning, look, beginning to be um, overturned through the power of prayer and, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit on him and his ministry. And so they're beginning to see results. But through this, they have experienced a tremendous calm, a great calm. Like, and it makes no sense to me because I think he should be freaking out. I think he should be really angry. I think he should be mad at these people. But there's a great calm. There's been prophetic words over them. And, and, and I read something just the other day that, that he, was, he was upset that in all of these public places he's standing, he's in public ridicule, but there was a word spoken, a word given to his wife for him in his ministry that said every place publicly that you stand and received ridicule will become a pulpit and a stage for you to proclaim the glories of Christ. And, and they're able to have this great calm in the midst of this really, really difficult situation. Oftentimes, when we feel God leading us in a direction, we feel God asking us to do something, we feel God asking us to make a change, we feel God asking us to say something, and so there's this stirring or rumbling in our heart and in our spirits. We try to determine what is right for us. We try to figure out what is right for our family. We wrestle through all of the variables, and often what you will hear somebody say, if he's a believer, this very Christianese term, they'll say something like this, I don't know, I just feel a peace about it. I don't know what is going to happen. I just feel a peace about it. And in essence, what they're saying is, I feel good about stepping into this battle because I know and I understand that Jehovah Shalom is directing me. I just feel a peace about it. I don't know what's going to happen. I just feel a peace. We had a peace about some of the changes that we were making here for 2016, the, the, the Vision 2016 concept right? We had a piece about it. We were thinking about it. We were thinking through all the variables and all the, the, the potential hiccups, and, and we had a piece about it, and so we, we stepped forward, and, and as soon as we declared the vision to you and, and we started enacting this, we've realized that there is a lot of stuff that we have to work on. There's a lot of changes that we have to make. Like, we said yes to the vision, but we've stepped right into the battle, knowing that it is really, really difficult. I had a peace about becoming the pastor of this church uh, several years ago, um, and I remember that vote on that very first Sunday. I, I remember the tension and the anxiety that I felt as uh, trying to figure out what was going on, but there was a peace there. And then after the vote and after we were elected and, and after we went home and they were, we were there with family and our kids, there was this great calm. Like there, there was just this great peace. It was like a deep, and a sigh of relief. Like, hey, everything is right in the world. And then Monday, we drove to church and we came here and we came to church for the very first time wearing a very different hat, fulfilling a very different role. And it was as if God said, okay, now it's time to fight. Now it's time to work for the church, for the kingdom, for the lost, for the believers. Now it's time to get busy. Now it's time to go fight. And we knew that we were able to, or we, we believe that we're able to, to succeed in the fight because Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace, told us to in the beginning. A great calm doesn't always mean 
the battle is over. Number two, the great calm doesn't always mean great courage. Great calm doesn't always mean great courage. I want you to see how similar the response is in both of these stories. Mark chapter 4, verse 40, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you so little faith? So Jesus stands up, he calms the winds and the waves, and he says, why are you guys so afraid? Uh, I mean, it's just waves, it's just wind. I mean, I'm here with you. Why do you not believe? And so he sort of chastises them that they're afraid of the wind and the waves. And so you would think, you would imagine, you would guess that the disciples, after they heard Jesus saying this, after they saw Jesus doing this, would be filled with faith and courage, and they would say, okay, Jesus, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. If you are able to command the winds and the waves, and they will respond, then there is nothing that you can't do. So you just tell me, and you would think they would be puffed up and they would stand up with courage and strength and say, whatever, I'm gonna go and we're gonna turn this world upside down. But this is how they respond, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The great calm turned in to great fear. That seems odd to me. We go back to Gideon. So Gideon reveals himself, or God reveals himself to Gideon, rather, as the Lord is peace. Tells Gideon to go cut down and destroy that junk in his family, in his life, in his nation that doesn't belong there. Go get rid of it. Go destroy it. Go destroy the idols. You would think that Gideon would be filled with great courage, great power, because God had revealed himself to Gideon, and they talked. They had a conversation over dinner. Like they sat there and, and Gideon saw God manifested in human form and they had a conversation. Like I don't know about you, but, but if, if God showed up at my dinner table and sat down and I realized he was God, not just like, man, this guy seems weird, um, but if I realized in my heart and knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was God and he told me to do something, like I, I would be pretty encouraged, right? I, I feel like I would have lots of faith. But this is how Gideon responds. Let me find it here. Verse 27. So Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Okay, maybe he is a man of great faith and power. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So God, the creator of the universe, tells Gideon to do something. And Gideon's response is, okay, but I'm a little bit afraid of my family and my neighbors. Great calm, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Okay, I get it, but I am. Great calm doesn't always mean great courage. We're quick to forget that God is still there once the battle starts. I don't know why it is, but, but I and probably many of you always assume that once the battle starts, it means that God has abandoned me. And I get afraid. I get nervous. I get a peace, and then I, and then I take a step, and then there's a battle, and then God asks me to fight. He asks me to do something, and I look around, and I think, why is there a battle here? Because, God, you asked me to do that. And he knew there was a battle, but he's always there. And he's never abandoned us. I think that the question that believers unknowingly wrestle with on a consistent basis is, what if God doesn't come through this time? What if God doesn't come through this time? I know he has, but what if he doesn't again? 
Consider how drastically our faith would change if we understood the divine or the divine again that is God. I read an author ask this question. He said, what if God didn't set the universe in motion and then remove his divine hand? What if God understands, or what if God is the author of the divine again and again and again? He says, is it possible that God every morning, like an orchestra conductor, looks at the sun and says, rise again? Isn't it possible that God has the heart of a loving father so much that he doesn't just set the wheels in motion and back off, but says, okay, I'll do it again and again and again and again and again. If you're a parent and you have a a toddler, if you're a grandparent, you have a toddler or a little preschooler age, pick them up and do like an airplane, or throw them up in the air, or, or spin them around. Yeah, do this. Grab them and spin them around, and then set them, that, set them down. What will they say to you? Again. Okay, one more time. Again. One more time. Again. 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 Until like, like you will die, because they'll, <clears throat> they will again you to death. They will again you to death. Isn't it possible that our God is such a loving Father that he's saying, I'm not just going to set the wheels in motion. I'm not just going to get the motor running and back off, but because he loves us so much that he says, again, again, again. Is it possible that every beat of your heart is in response to God's divine again, again, again? Is it possible that every breath that you take is a result of God declaring to your lungs again, again, again? See, reliability brings a tremendous amount of peace. Because if that's true, and if God is the God of the divine again, then that makes me feel so good. Because I know that the Lord of the universe is overseeing the very beat of my heart. I know that on the day that the sun refuses to rise, it's because God has ordained it. And I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to freak out. I don't have to run because of Armageddon and judgment. I know that the God of peace, that the Lord is peace, that my divine again has something else in mind. And I'm going to roll with it because he's God and he's got me. Reliability brings peace, man. It just does. I, I was... In college, and I had this car, and it just, would, it just wouldn't start consistently. Three to four times a week, I'd have to get somebody to jump me, and we checked the battery, we charged it, we changed it, and just, I don't know what, it was, what was going on with it. It just wasn't working. It just wouldn't start consistently. It drove me absolutely crazy. Every time I put the key in, I was like, oh, please start this time. Sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. I had to tell Strain, hey, can I get a jump? And friends, every time I'd start my car, I'd say, hey, could you come out there with me? Because my car is probably not going to start. It drove me crazy because there was no reliability in it. I couldn't count on it. There was no peace with this car. It just, it just tons of anxiety because it wasn't reliable. Too many of us, we see God as my college car. Maybe he'll show up this time. Maybe he'll come through this time. Maybe I can trust him this time. But God is a God of the divine again. Great calm doesn't always lead to great courage because 
I think oftentimes we forget the power of his nearness. Worship team, could you guys come? When your kid has a nightmare, they come to your room crying on the verge of hyperventilation. They're freaking out. (laughs) You know what I mean? What's going on? What happened? Oh, I had a nightmare. And they're telling you what their nightmare was. It was rats or dragons or, you know, the boogeyman, whatever, whatever their nightmare was. And you try to console them and you try to make them feel better. You hug them, you rub their head, you wipe their tears, and they're just terrified. You try to do your best to reassure them and you tell them to go back to bed. And it's always followed by more tears, right? You know, more tears. That, that panic, dark walk back to their bedroom and, you know, and try to get back under the covers before whatever they were scared of gets them. And, and most of the time, if it's a typical kid, at least my kids, um, 10 to 15 minutes later, they'll come back again. I just can't get to sleep. I just can't stop thinking about it. Well, stop thinking about it. I can't stop thinking. Just stop thinking about it, right? Just go to bed, you know? And they walk away crying again. It's just this whole mess. But if you say to them, buddy, sweetheart, look, why don't you just hop into bed with me? Why don't you jump into bed right here between Melissa and I? Well, what, what happens? The tears instantly stop. All the weird, <laughs> it just it goes away automatically, right? Because there's something about the nearness and the presence of mom and dad that you can count on. And it brings peace. You can trust in it. You can believe in it. I remember those nights when I was growing up as a kid. And you'd have those nightmares. You'd go, you know, go to bed. And then those times where she'd say, hey, just hop in bed with us. I can't deal with it anymore. I wore her down, man. <laughs> hop into bed with us. I can't deal with it. You know, there was something on those scary nights about the smell of your parents' bed. You know what I'm talking about? Like it just, it just smelt like mom and dad. And, and because they were there, because they were near, I could go right to sleep. Because you could hear them breathe, because you could feel them next to you, it just created a tremendous amount of peace. And for me, it was the fact that I knew that if a bad guy broke in, they would get RJ and my sisters before they would get me. It just created peace in me. I was the last to go. I would suggest that we learn to live in the presence of Jehovah. And when we do, when we can, in our spirit, feel him and see him and smell him, the natural byproduct is peace. It just is. The third point I want to make is this. Great calm doesn't always mean everyone notices. I want to look at Mark chapter 4 again, and I want to consider a small line that we don't often consider. Verse 36 says this, and other boats were with him. Remember I told you Jesus was in the boat with the 12, but the other disciples were there. The other disciples felt the storm. The other disciples were scared of the waves. The other disciple felt the rain. The other boats were afraid that they were about to die. But it was only those 12 that knew what happened. Think about this for a second. They were in the same storm, but they didn't fully understand the great calm. The other boats knew things were really bad, but they didn't perceive that things were about to get really good. 
The other boats were full of people who knew that Jesus could command the crowds, but they were yet to realize that Jesus could command the waves. They didn't see it. They weren't there. And this is something that we have to understand when the Holy Spirit whispers to our heart, when he ushers in a great personal calm, when Jehovah uh, Shalom rules in your spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean that your family, your spouse, or your friends are going to experience the same thing too. When a person gets saved, give their heart to Jesus, understanding what happened on the cross, that, that, that they accept Jesus to be their Lord and King, and the peace of God is declared over their life, you, you often hear them say something like this. It's as if a giant weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. And they'll say something like, I, I know that nothing has changed, but everything has changed. And Jehovah Shalom speaks peace over their life and it changes them. Your family may not have seen the miracle, but they'll see the peace in your life. Your co-workers may not have a relationship with the Lord, but they'll see the peace in your life. You may be in a situation that everybody thinks you should be freaking out, but because Jehovah Shalom spoke over you, there is a divine, great calm. There is a supernatural peace, and they'll see it, though they don't fully understand. Stand your feet all across this place. The Lord is peace. He's a great calm. And there is no storm that you have to be afraid of because Jehovah Shalom is in the boat. There's no battle that you have to be afraid of because Jehovah Shalom gives the marching orders. And there's no command that you have to question because Jehovah Shalom has never let you down. He is the divine again, again, again. And so he says, hey, let's go through this storm and I'll be your savior again. Walk in obedience, and I'll be a blessing again. Be faithful, declare the word of God, and I will advance my kingdom again. Be faithful to take a risk, and I will catch you again, and again, and again. I don't know what you're facing here this morning, but I do know that there are a number of us today that need Jehovah Shalom. You need peace. You need peace in your situation. You need peace in your heart. You need peace in your life. Bow your heads and close your eyes all across this place.